The international forces that answered the UN's call to defend the Republic of Korea between 1950 and 1953 did more than engage in combat with North Korean and Chinese soldiers. In December 1950, American troops at the port city of Hungnam rescued 100,000 North Korean refugees, even as they faced enemy fire and a bitter Korean winter. One of the officers who were critical to what would be later known as the Hungnam evacuation was Colonel Edward Forney. In 2017, Colonel Forney's grandson, Ned Forney, was invited to Washington, D.C. to take part in a ceremony at the National Marine Corps Museum's new memorial for those who undertook the rearguard action to buy time and space for the evacuation. Korean Context then-host Jenna Gibson had an opportunity to sit down with him for a conversation about Colonel Edward Forney and how South Korea's current president, Moon Jae-in, is personally tied to that story. With no further delay, from the Korea Economic Institute in Washington, D.C., you're listening to Korean Context. So first of all, I really want to thank you for taking your time. I know you're having a very brief visit here to D.C., so I appreciate you taking aside the time to talk to me for the podcast. Uh, my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. So I think what would be good is for some of our listeners who may not be that well-versed in uh, the history of the Korean War, um, would you mind starting off with a brief summary of the Chosun Reservoir battle and the subsequent evacuation? Why is that an important part of the war? Yeah, sure. Um, maybe what I'll do just, just very briefly is, you know, June 25th, 1950 is when the war started. North Korea invaded the South. Um, and then there was one area of the country that hadn't been taken over called the Pusan Perimeter. And then, of course, MacArthur on September 15th does the Incheon landing, which changes the whole tide of the war. The Marines and the Army um, go barreling up into North Korea. And they get as far as uh, almost the Yali River. Actually, some units do get to the Yali River, which Mao had warned repeatedly not to do. Um, MacArthur didn't listen. So we did go that far north. And, of course, in late October, early November, the Chinese enter the war. So once they enter the war, the Marines uh, in the 10th Corps, the 1st Marine Division was attached to 10th Corps, an Army unit. Um, they were up in the area called the Chosun Reservoir. It's actually in Korea called the Chungjin Reservoir, but we had Japanese maps, and the Japanese maps called it, called it Chosun Reservoir. So we're our, uh, the 1st Marine Division and the 31st Regimental Combat Team are up there uh, at the Chosun Reservoir, and they're surrounded by the Chinese. And it's bitterly cold, you know, it's, you know, 20 below, wind chills, and heavy snow and just and there's only one road they called it the MSR the main supply route that took all the supplies up into the Chosun Reservoir from Hamhung and Hunnam which were two towns uh, Hunnam's actually a port right on the on the coast on the northeast coast of North Korea so so they're all there and um, they finally break out as the as the marine general uh, in charge of the first marine division general smith says we were just attacking in another direction so they attack towards uh, hamhung and hunnam where the ships are waiting for them to take them uh, to rescue them to take them back down to the south so that was um, the changjin or the chosen reservoir campaign brutal the casualties were extremely high the whole world was watching MacArthur was watching very carefully, Mao was watching very carefully, and Mao had told his troops, if we annihilate the Marines there, Truman will probably pull America out of the war and we would regroup in Japan. 
So we do escape from Chongjin, but then Hunam becomes very important because once you escape, you still have to get your guys on the ships, your tanks, your jeeps, your trucks, the ammunition, the supplies, everything, um, which my grandfather, Colonel Forney, uh, was, was responsible for. He was a Marine, U.S. Marine Colonel, attached to the 10th Corps, and he was General Almond's Deputy Chief of Staff. So he organizes the evacuation, and um, there were hundreds of thousands of North Korean refugees there who were fleeing the communists. In a series of about, it took two weeks to do the evacuation. He um, helped, along with Admiral Doyle, who was the admiral in charge of all the ships, to get a, approximately 100,000 refugees on those ships. And today, it's estimated there are a million descendants of those refugees, and President Moon Jae-in is one of them. Right. So you mentioned about your, your grandfather, that this was, uh, that he was in charge of this evacuation. So tell me a little bit about him, about your personal connection to this, this part of history and, and why you decided to write a book about it. Sure. Yeah. So I never knew my grandfather. He died when I was two years old. Um, he died in, he was 55 years old in 1965. Um, and one of the things we think, um, the reason he died so young, he had cancer. And in World War II, uh, he was a lieutenant colonel, and he was um, sent to, right at the end of the war, about four weeks, after, three weeks after they dropped the atomic bomb on Nagasaki, he was sent with the Marines to occupy Nagasaki and help rebuild it and as a police force, occupying force. So he was there for uh, over a year. So there was a lot of radiation in the area, and so who knows. But he had um, graduated from the Naval Academy, he was born in 1909, went into the Marines as a young lieutenant, and then served in World War II in the Pacific. And then after the, after the war, I guess about maybe half a year, six months before Korean War breaks out, MacArthur goes to the Marine Corps and says, listen, can you send somebody to us to help train the Army guys who he was in charge of? He was in, he was in basically the governor, so to speak, of, of Japan. So he had many Army troops in Japan that he was responsible for. So he said, you know, we need, a, we need an amphibious expert to help train the Army guys to do amphibious operations in case the Soviet Union were to invade Japan or maybe something would happen on the Korean Peninsula. So my grandfather was in Japan, in Tokyo, when the war started. So he was already there with his team of experts. Uh, and then he had, uh, he had a role um, in the Incheon landing because, once again, MacArthur puts General Almond in charge of the operation of Incheon. And General Almond is not a Marine. He's not an amphibious expert. So he has the Marines helping him and obviously the Navy. So General Smith and Admiral Doyle and Colonel Forney all come together, and uh, the initial phases of Incheon were all led by Marines, and then the Army units come right after, and then they liberate Seoul. Um, so that, that's the background, but actually at, at Hunam, um, General Almond knew that every Marine, every soldier, every rock soldier had to get out of Hunam. We were trapped. So the only way to get out was by, by water. So in what becomes a huge military operation, there's also the civilian aspect of it, which I can mention a little bit more later. Um, 
So the logistics of how you're going to get all these men, and you have to do it quickly, and the Chinese are all around you getting ready to, they're putting pressure. Not a lot, because they had lost so many men up at, up at the Chosen Reservoir that, that it wasn't a lot of pressure, but they were there. They were in the mountains right, right above um, Hunam. So that was the trick, is how do you get all these people in, in a systematic way on these ships with pressure from the Chinese? And you have to do it by the D-Day, was um, December 24th because it, at 2 p.m. it was scheduled, they were scheduled to blow the entire port. And, and MacArthur and Almond had said, we're not leaving any jeeps, we're not leaving any trucks, tanks, nothing for the communists when we pull out. So that was the, the pressure that, that my grandfather was under when he, when he did all that. But the great part of the story is there was a doctor who he became friends with. Um, the doctor had gone to school in Virginia two years before the war. Um, he was from North Korea, and he was from Hamhung, which is the town about 10 miles from Hungnam. So he speaks English really well. And when General Almond, about two months before this operation, when he meets Dr. Hyun, my grandfather and, and General Almond were together, and they did a tour of a, of a Marine unit. And uh, Dr. Hyun was part of that Marine unit, that rock Marine unit. And so they, they started talking to him, and they said, you speak English really well. Why don't you come work for us? And when he told them, my hometown is Ham Hung, and that's where General Almond was going to move his headquarters, it all fit in perfectly. So Dr. Hyun became a civil affairs officer for the 10th Corps, which General Almond was the officer in charge of. So Dr. Hyun and Colonel Forney become good friends. And as the, as the operation takes place, um, more and more of the refugees start flooding down into Hunam. And we have guards and we have block, you know, roadblocks everywhere trying to keep the refugees from coming in because this is a military operation. We can't have refugees running around where all the tanks are and all the equipment. There's, just, it's not, there's no place for them. But they keep coming and they keep coming. And so Dr. Hyun and Colonel Forney both agreed that something needs to be done. Because when we pull out and the North Koreans come and the Chinese and they see all these guys with their packs on and their children, obviously they're trying to escape with the enemy and they'll die. So that was a priority for them after, first priority was always getting the military out first. And that's just a reality, it was a military operation. But as the days went on and it got closer and closer to the deadline, then the pressure was on to, we, got, we have to do something for the refugees. So that's when Dr. Hyun and Colonel Forney would go to General Almond and say, Sir, you know, can we figure out a way to get these refugees on the ships? And initially, General Almond and the military in general said, No, you don't put civilians on military ships. It's a big risk. Um, and, and we were always worried that North Korean infiltrators were amongst the refugees, and there were some. Um, so that, you know, there's a security problem. And to just say, Oh, let the refugees get on ships. You can't do that. But they started to do it, and they would put them on top of the tanks, under the tanks, and on top of the you know barrels of uh, fuel or whatever. Wherever they could fit them in, they started fitting them in. So by the 22nd of December, about 30,000 refugees had already been rescued. So now we're on the 22nd, and the deadline is the 24th. So we have the 22nd, the 23rd, and the 24th, three days, and now it's big-time panic. And Admiral Doyle somehow 
We've got three um, merchant marine ships in there. They're called Victory ships, huge ships. And the Meredith Victory is the most famous one. And um, the Meredith Victory's captain, uh, Captain Leonard LaRue, very famous man now. And um, Bob Lunny, who's a friend of mine, he was a crew member on the ship. He was an officer. He's still alive. He's 90 years old. And um, he'll be at the ceremony um, this Wednesday. He's a great guy. And I've interviewed him and two of the other surviving officers. So, so these ships come in at the last minute, and 14,000 on those merchant marine ships. There was two, Meredith Victory and the Virginia City Victory. Unbelievable. It's a, it's a record. Um, most cruise ships you see today, the, the, the massive cruise ships that are down in Miami and you know 20 stories high and everything, they hold usually around 7,000. And these small merchant marine ships were holding 14,000. So it was, it was just amazing. So by the time they blow the port on the 24th, um, when they calculate all the numbers of the, the civilians who got on the merchant marine ships and on the LSTs and on whatever ships they could get on, it was right around 100,000. Oh, that's amazing. And just, just a few days getting that many people on, on ships and getting them out, I mean. I've interviewed 30 former refugees. So they were there and they tell me it was just, there was panic and there was just so much confusion, so many people and people were so desperate. Um, and whenever I interview them, I always have a translator because obviously they're always, they're speaking in Korean. And um, usually at some point in the interview, they cry. And, and some of these, these are like 85 year old, really tough Korean guys and, and women. And they, they almost always get emotional, especially when they talk about leaving their families. You know, because most of them thought they were leaving for maybe three days or three weeks or maybe three months, but not forever. And, and many of them never heard from their families again, never got a letter, no phone calls, nothing. You just, you have no idea. Right. I know that's a big priority, or it has been for several administrations in South Korea, is getting those family reunions started up again. And, you know, unfortunately, circumstances are such that it just hasn't happened. Man, it's, so it's such a tragic story, and it's so sad. And I think many uh, many Americans don't realize, you know, that the fact that North Korea is there, South Korea is here, and my family is right up there in North Korea, maybe 60, 100 miles away, and I have no idea what, what they're doing, if they're alive. I mean, it's just, it's, you know, I think one of, you, one of your podcasts, you were interviewed, and we, you were talking about, you know, oh, do you live in North or South Korea? can't live in North Korea. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, so I'm really interested, um, can you tell us a little bit more about what you're doing here in D.C.? What's, how did this trip come about, and, and what's the plan? So in, in Korea, they have the Ministry of Patriots and Veterans Affairs, very similar to our VA. And um, so I've worked with them. They've helped put me in contact with refugees, some of the 30 refugees that I've interviewed. And I've gone to many of their events because they're, the Koreans are very appreciative. I mean, of course, across the board, maybe some of the younger Koreans, they don't have quite as much knowledge of what happened during the war. But overwhelmingly, the, the Koreans are appreciative of what the Americans did for them and for their country during the Korean War. So when the MPVA found out that I was living in Korea, actually they found out my son has lived there for seven years, so they knew about Colonel Forney way before I even got there because 
Ben, who speaks Korean, was going on interviews and writing um, articles in the Chosun Ilbo in Korean. And so many of the MPVA folks and the government officials and, and lots of just, you know, people in, in Seoul knew the story of Colonel Forney and the Hunam evacuation. And then about three years ago, there was a great movie that came out, um, Ode to My Father. Um, and in Korea, it's called Kukje Market. And great, great movie. And the opening scene is Hungnam. And of course, then we would tell people our grandfather was in charge of that operation. And they go, oh, it's so wonderful. So the MPVA has been wonderful, very supportive. Um, so, you know, the way fate unfolds sometimes, you know, with the, what happened with Pakane and now Moon Jae-in, who, who lost in the last election, he's, he is now president. And he is publicly and frequently talking about his parents and his parents were on the one of those ships that was taking the refugees out in December of 1950. So he's very appreciative. Um, so that's why tomorrow he is going to the National Museum of the Marine Corps in Quantico where they've just built about maybe a month or two months ago a memorial to the veterans of Chosun Reservoir. And he'll give a speech there and do a, a wreath-laying ceremony um, as a symbolic uh, tribute, and also he, he's going to—he's going to, I think, verbally say that you know he's appreciative of what the men did at Chosun, because without them stopping the Chinese, you know, the Chinese would have wiped out Ham Hung and Hung Nam, and his parents would never have escaped. And then the evacuation—he talks about that also frequently. So it's. You know, it's a great tribute to the the men who, who served during that time, the Americans and the ROC forces, and there was also a British unit that was there too, um, a British commando unit. So he's going to pay tribute, and I was a Marine myself, and, and so I think it's it's a great gesture, and I think it's the first step in this U.S.-Korea summit, and it'll be a positive one, I'm hoping. I think it's really amazing timing. I mean, um, President Moon coming for his first summit as president right after the anniversary of the start of the war, which was just this past Sunday, and this memorial had just opened. I mean, it couldn't be more perfect as far as timing, right? The timing's unbelievable. And so I got a call last week from the Korean embassy, and they said, I forgot how they got my number. And they said, oh, they contacted M MPVA, and MPVA gave them my number. And the, the gentleman, the, the colonel and the, and the Rock Marines called and said, oh, we want you to come to this ceremony. I said, well, I'm in Seoul. And they said, oh, that's okay. So I'm here for 36 hours to see the event, and I, I'm so honored that I'll be able to be there. Dr. Hyun, who was Colonel Forney's um, good friend and helped, obviously did a lot to help save the refugees, one of his daughters who I know well now, uh, she will be there with her husband and the grandson of General Almond, uh, Colonel Ferguson, who's also a friend of mine, he will be there representing his grandfather. So they, they did all the research and they got all these you know, people together that have some um, role or their, or their fathers or grandfathers did, yeah. So it'll, it'll, be, a great, it'll be a great day. As I just mentioned, um, the anniversary just happened, of the, the start of the war, the 67th anniversary was this year. So as a former history teacher, what would you think is 
important for us to remember about the war, about this particular part of the war now, 67 years later, yeah. and looking forward. Yeah, I, we, uh, we went to a ceremony Friday, my son and I, at the Lo fancy Lotte Hotel downtown Seoul, and uh, President Moon was there. And he gave a speech, and he thanked the the Chosin Reservoir veterans. He he thanked all the UN veterans and the obviously the the, the Korean veterans. Um, but he went out of his way to say Chosin and Hunam. So the thing I get whenever I interview Korean War veterans, U.S. Korean War veterans, and I and I ask them, you know, so you, know, you came to Korea, you didn't you didn't probably even know where it was on the map. Most of them admit that we didn't know where Korea was, and. You know, you saw some of your buddies probably not, they didn't come home. And was it worth it? And they always say, every one of them, and they get very passionate when they say it, yes, and I would do it again. I'm so glad that we helped Korea earn their freedom because they go to Seoul, MPVA pays for them to go to Seoul. There's a special program where they come to Seoul for, I think, four or five days and they get to, get to see Seoul and parts of the country. <clears throat> and they're amazed at what the Koreans have done with the freedom we helped give them. And so, you know, it's, it's very moving. Some of them get teary-eyed and they're like, if, I, if I'd known, you know, I wish I'd come earlier because most of them are in their 80s now and they, and they, and they actually get a chance to come. So it, I think it's, you know, we never want war. And my book is going to hopefully show that clearly, that, you know, there's, there's never good war. But... Sometimes consequences, as, as the years go by, you see that, that this was the right thing to do. And, and Korea is a wonderful country. It's a wonderful democracy. And considering it's such a young democracy, it's a pretty mature democracy. What they did and with the candlelight vigils and, you know, they basically had a turnover of power in a very extreme way, but a very peaceful way. Their government continued even during the protests and with the current president being put on trial and impeached. Their, their country was operating and now they have a new president and um, it's amazing what they've done. And, and you know, obviously 13th largest economy in the world. We all have LG appliances in our house and we have Samsung and so it's, it's, um, it's, it's a great success story. Right, great. Well, um, I've learned a lot myself, and I hope that the listeners will as well. Um, before we go, is there anything else that you want to make sure that um, we know about? Yeah, I, I think just the, the last thing, one of the messages of my book will be that um, it's important to keep this Korean-American friendship alive because both countries have a lot in common. And, you know, there are so many Korean-Americans now here in the, in the States, and we have such a partnership, and it's important our presidents will come and go, Korean presidents will come and go, but our, the people you know, and, their, and the governments will stay the same, and we need to keep cooperating militarily, economically, and, um, and just do exchanges and, and tourism, all that. It's important. That would be my final message. Keep the Korean-American friendship strong. That's it for our episode today. Many thanks to Ned Forney, Jenna Gibson, and to you listeners for tuning in. If you haven't already, we highly recommend you checking out our previous week's episodes. We interviewed historian Charles Krauss on the origins of the division on the Korean Peninsula, and then we spoke with Colonel John Stevens on his on-the-ground experience from the start of the Korean War, the defense of the Busan perimeter, and the landing at Incheon. The story of Colonel Edward Forney from this episode picks up from there. Links to both episodes can be found in the description of this episode. We'll be back next week. See you then.